This is good old boy Mike from Sips, Suds, and Smokes podcast, and you're listening to Pop Goes Your World. I'm Chris McBrien, and the pop culture from Generation X is everything to me. And I'm Derek Myers, and I'm here to educate Chris on the great pop culture of today's generation. Episode 157, The Adventures of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, movie review. Chris McBride, along with Derek Myers, and this is Pop Goes Your World, a pop culture podcast for the generations. If you would like to reach out and contact Derek, you can do so on Twitter at Amaron underscore DM. That's his handle. And at C McBrien is my handle. And popgoesyourworld.com is our website with all of our contact information. Derek, what's new in the world of pop culture for you, my friend? Hey, Chris. Hi. Well, after, after weeks of not really having a lot of time to consume any sort of movies. I have had an abundance of time this week and I watched seven movies. Oh my goodness. What do you watch? the one we're about to talk about. Oh, right. So yes. I'm not going to go into all of them, but uh, well, I do want to put down the list quickly. Uh, and you'll be happy to know two of them are documentaries because, you know, apparently I'm the documentary guy now. So, um, you are. what did I watch? So I watched um, an animated feature that just dropped on HBO called Spies in Disguise. And it's got the voices of Will Smith and Tom Holland, who is the new Spider-Man in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And the the whole uh, idea is that um, Will Smith is a super duper super spy who only works alone. And then Tom Holland is the, the young, smart, genius guy who accidentally turns Will Smith's character into a pigeon. Uh, again, it's it all makes sense in the context of the movie. And then so for the next hour, Will Smith is the talking pigeon who thinks he's still a super spy who needs the the geeky nerdy kid to help him complete his mission. It was actually really good. I really enjoyed it. Uh, I, it's one of these, uh, you know, fun for the whole family dealios. And it's got like good positive messages about teamwork and, and asking for help when you need it and all that good stuff. So strongly recommend that one to you um, for documentaries. I watched one that's called The Way I See It. And it's about the press secretary for Barack Obama. Or I've, not the press secretary. The, the uh, photographer. The photographer. I've heard you. of this one. This one looks good. This is the same gentleman who was the photographer for Ronald Reagan. So he was the photographer for uh, a very popular Republican president. And he was the photographer for a very popular Democratic president. Obviously different time periods. But uh, a tremendous amount of access. And, and was able to humanize both both presidents through photographs um, of re capturing real moments as they happen, unexpectedly just being in the right place at the right time. And the whole documentary is juxtaposed against what uh, our, the U.S. current president, President Trump, has done the opposite of that. And he has essentially denied photographers access to anything candid. And apparently most, if not all, of his photos are, are staged and scripted. There's no off the cuff, just being in the right place at the right time. Everything with President Trump apparently is a stage set up photo shoot. You know, a, a, the president wants his image to be portrayed a certain way and ensures that it is. And hey, if that's what he wants, that's his choice. But it was a very interesting look at at those two styles. And then, of course, the uh, photographer who has very much Democratic leanings um, has 
become quite popular on social media by taking events that President Trump is doing and juxtaposing them, contrasting them with events that Barack Obama did and sort of showing different photographs or using certain commentary that one or both of the presidents have made and sort of showing two different pictures of how they've done it differently. The, the documentary was very well done. I, I would strongly recommend it. Regardless of your political leanings, I think it just it's a very interesting uh, look at the presidency. Um, this one's just for you, Chris. I watched ZZ Top. The little band from Texas. Nice. Where was that? Where, where did you find it? On Netflix. Netflix. Just dropped in September. Oh, I'm going to make a note 90 of minute documentary about how ZZ Top got together. And it basically ends with them in the mid 80s when they hit MTV and they put out the Eliminator album. That's oh, where the documentary ends because by that point they became so famous. Everybody knows the story from that point forward. Right. Oh, but the band is still together. They were saying they've been together with the same band, the same lineup. Yep. They've never broken up for over 50 years now. We know that. We went to see them a couple of years ago together. Absolutely. Yeah, it was fantastic. Like, I didn't know oh, anything man. about how the band got together. I didn't know. I knew a little bit about sort of where they were from. But, it, I mean, I love me a documentary and I love ZZ Top. This was like two of my favorite things coming together. I stayed up real late one night watching. I thought I'll just watch the first nice. 10 minutes. No, watch the whole thing. It was great. Uh, the last one I want to talk about mm -hmm. is a new release that just dropped. Uh, I also believe this one was on Netflix. It's called The Trial of the Chicago 7. It's written and directed by Aaron Sorkin, who mm -hmm. is best known for things like The West Wing and A Few Good Men and The Social Network. Um, and it's obviously based on the real life story of The Trial of the Chicago 7, which I didn't really know a lot about going in, which I think kind of was good because I, I didn't have any preconceived notion of, of who was going to say what, or I mean, I sort of knew what was going to happen. I knew the broad strokes, but this is fantastic. It, this will be eligible for all the awards coming up that, for Oscars and Golden Globes and such. And I would be shocked if this doesn't just run away with nominations up the wazoo. It's, uh, it, it is great. It's got performances by a lot of actors you watch and you go, Oh, I totally know that guy. Um, it's got previous nominee Oscar nominees some previous Oscar winners. Uh, just it's a great performances all around and uh, I can't recommend it strongly enough. So I saw a lot of uh, a lot of good ones this week. That's awesome. Um, you've Derek, you've mentioned before about how we have a local TV station here in Ontario out of Hamilton and this station plays old TV shows. During the afternoon. CHCH, Channel 11. That I don't is, know if they're on 11 anymore, but they used to be. That is correct. I think they're on. They're still there. I think um, they're called the new CH. And right. They do their retro pack. They used to play Happy Days at 5 o'clock and then Cheers at 5.30. Now, I, I full disclosure, I usually make dinner in my house. So I'm not never really available to watch TV during that time. But last night, my wife made dinner. So I decided to take advantage of my free time. And I figured I'd flip on the Hamilton TV station and catch a couple of these old shows. Well, let me tell you, CHCH, as you mentioned, they've actually changed their afternoon programming. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I've been watching some of the stuff in the afternoon. They've totally changed up their lineup. It's actually for the better. And I'll say this. At five o'clock, they had Gilligan's Island on. Nice. And then they followed that up at 530 with the Brady Bunch. Nice. <laughs> and my seven-year-old son was sitting beside me. He was on his tablet. He wanted nothing to do with these old TV shows. I was like, oh, you got to watch these. Really? Even Gilligan's Island? Yeah, Kids he, love that show. Yeah, he was like, I don't want to watch this. Because it was one of the ones in black and white. So I think that threw oh, him geez. off. Oh, jeez. Must have been season one. Yeah, it was old. So he didn't want to watch it. But then I started singing the theme songs word for word. And he was like, Daddy, how do you know these theme songs so good? 
it was, oh my God, it was so good. You know, I was like, here's a story of a lovely lady who was living with three very lovely girls. And my son just turns up the volume on his Minecraft game. (laughs) (laughs) Apparently daddy is lame. Yeah. Chris, it's funny that you sing that Brady Bunch song. Yep. I also sang the Brady Bunch song this afternoon on a work call. We were doing a Zoom call and there were exactly nine other participants. So what I was seeing was the grid of the three by three. And I started singing that Brady Bunch song and about three people laughed and the rest of them were so young. They had no idea what I was talking about. So it's, it's kind of funny that we both have sang that song today. I would have, if I would have loved to do that, if I was on that call, I would have called out the person in the middle and said, they're Ann B. Davis as Alice. You know, it would have been so good. Um, but like I say, my, um, the, the young, young people, they just don't get it. They, they just think we're lame, you know? So, uh, speaking of which, here's your dad joke of the week. Derek, since it's so close to Thanksgiving, I thought I'd do a Thanksgiving dad joke this week. Oh, but before you make fun of me, you know, as you have in the past couple of weeks, I should mention, you know, my friend has something to say to you. It ain't cool being no jive turkey so close to Thanksgiving. I just, I love that line so much. Anyway, so, okay, so here's my dad joke. Derek, what do you get if you divide a pumpkin's circumference by its diameter? Uh, I didn't know there would be math involved. I I don't know. Pumpkin pie. You know, it's like 3.14159265359. Oh, Chris, stop. Just stop. That's nothing but pure and simple communism. Oh, that sounds familiar. Hal Needham's futuristic masterpiece, Megaforce. With Chuck Norris? No, Barry Boswick and Michael Beck did all the heavy lifting in that one. I'm glad that happened to that guy. F him. I'm going to barbecue your and molasses. Thank you. The Southern NASCAR demographic. It's full of bigotry. It's full of racism. It's full of sexism. There's no way you came from my loins. Hey, how cool is this? What in the hell is this world coming to? Okay, so our movie this week is The Adventures of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert from 1994. Derek, you nominated this film. Uh, Last episode, I nominated the Dustin Hoffman film Tootsie. And in keeping with a similar theme, you went with Priscilla. Uh, for the interest of brevity, I think I'll just refer to it as Priscilla. Okay? Just, that's that's, that's all fair. Name, that's you know? fair. Uh, so, Derek, I guess you can start us off. Uh, why did you want us to go back and review this movie? Take it away. Okay. So, a couple of reasons. And again, I'll try to be brief because I know we're going to do a deep dive into some of the, the pieces of this. We always do. So, uh, as I mentioned at the end of the last podcast when, when we did the Tootsie episode was... Um, I, I felt that I wanted to encourage you and I moving forward for the next little bit that when we do our movie reviews to try and find some sort of commonality that can tie the two movies together. And I felt that this was a perfect time to, to leap into this idea, partly because with last week's episode, looking back on it, I had some issues and I don't think I'm alone, but I, I expressed some some concerns that the the subtext of what that movie was saying, at least when looked at through a more recent lens, was more along the lines of, um, you know, a man had to be had to dress up and take on the role of a woman in order to show other women how to do it right. And and it, it didn't it didn't sit with me very well. And I, I think we talked about that a fair amount last week. And so 
this movie, Adventures of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, I felt was a little bit more. Obviously, it's not this this the same theme, but I think it does a much better job of exploring that that idea of the gender roles, and not in a way that that I think is as I'm going to use the term condescending. Not that I necessarily think that Tootsie was condescending, but I think it didn't age as well when you look at it through today's lens. Now, let's not say that Priscilla has aged perfectly, but I think that enough time had passed. Uh, uh, Priscilla came out in 94, if I remember correctly, and Tootsie was, what, 82? Uh, Yes, 82, that's correct, yeah. So we're about 12 years between the movies, and hey, a lot of stuff happened between 82 and 94, especially with regards to gender roles, especially with regards to LGBTQ community, uh, you know, and, and, and... you're moving into this this uh, uh, revolution and this expansion of of rights and of of gender and identity and and all of these things. And I think this is a a movie that was sort of uh, on the forefront of that. And it presents these characters who you have one character played by Terrence Stamp, who is transgendered, and you have two other characters that are men that perf- that dress up as women to perform uh, like a cabaret show. Um, And so, you know, it's this, it's this similar idea of the men dressed as women, but as Tootsie, but it's definitely not the same kind of movie as Tootsie. And I just thought, you know, I'd like to take the things that I think Tootsie maybe did well from the 1982 perspective and see if we could look at this 1994 film and find some other things that this one does well and at the same time, honestly, I think this is a very entertaining movie. I've seen it probably a dozen times now. I was really looking forward to watching it. And uh, I had a really good time watching it again uh, just this last weekend. I hadn't seen it in probably five or six years. And my wife was very excited to watch it with me. And and we had a great old time. And so, yeah, that that's really why, you know, a big part of why I wanted to watch. I wanted to revisit a movie that I had very fond memories of. I wanted to look at it as as uh, a movie about gender roles and LGBTQ rights and, and sort of all of that kind of thing. And again, let's look at it from today's perspective and see if it still holds up. And, and if it doesn't, let's address those things. And if it does, let's talk about it a little bit. And again, it's it's got a lot of humor to it and it's got a lot of great musical numbers to it, a lot of great costumes. And hopefully there's at least enough in here that you can appreciate that we can be on the same page with some of this as we move forward. Well, let's get into this movie, shall we? Now, you know, we've actually started a really nice little runaround here because I've actually liked your movies lately, Derek. So it's been good. Okay. You ever heard a saying, all good things must come to an end? That's, I think, unfortunately, we're going to hear that right now. Yeah, that saying holds true for this week, Derek. This is hands down one of the worst movies I have ever seen in my entire life. So we're bringing the podcast back to its roots, let me tell you. Um, I want to start by a couple things. I, 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 okay, I'm just going to flat out. I've never really understood the appeal of drag. And my wife and I were, were talking about this. And, and when I first mentioned this to her, her initial take on it to me was she, she's like, I don't understand. She says, Chris, you're, you're one of the most accepting people I've ever known in my life. And then, and, and, I mean, she's right. I mean... I don't care who people love. I mean, the the world is so full of hate. I, I, I cannot believe that some people actually get hung up on who other people love. That makes absolutely no sense to me whatsoever. But it, it's not that I don't understand drag as a, as a gay subculture, because I think it's way more than that. 
I guess what I don't understand is the appeal from the audience perspective. So, for example, like if I wanted to see women sing, I'd go see women sing. And I guess I'm assuming that part of the appeal for everyone involved is that it's sort of a counterculture thing, you know, where social norms are challenged and the idea of feminism is exaggerated. I, I don't know. I just, I, I've never really understood drag and I, I don't understand watching this movie. Does this make any sense to you? Sure. I mean, I, I can understand or or sympathize with sort of the, the perspective that, that you've got for this. For me, very, very similar line. It's like, yeah, hey, I'm I'm as wide open as accepting as as well, I don't want to say as the next guy, probably more than the next guy. And much like, you know, to echo your sentiment, you be you. You love who you love. I'll worry and love who I love. And hey, you do whatever feels good for you. As long as it doesn't interfere with somebody else, who cares? Be your be your true self. I'm all I'm all for that. Um, as far as the idea of the drag, for me, I think part of it is because I, I I actually find it fascinating. I like the I think part of the idea is that it's like I, I, I'm gonna this is gonna sound bad and I almost hesitate to say it. It's like you're in on the joke. Not that I think the people that do it are a joke, but you know, like when something's happening and it's like if you've got that little wink wink inside knowledge, you get a little more out of it. I've always felt that that's sort of half of the appeal is because I've actually seen a few of these shows. We were in Vegas years ago. We went to the Riviera Casino and they they had a, a show that was a drag show that was very entertaining. We've saw it a couple of times, actually. And it's the same idea. It's men dressing as women and lip syncing to their songs. And and it was not just the visual spectacle of it's a guy dressed like a girl. It's a it's, a, you know, a potentially a strong likeness of an actual celebrity and hey you can dance but it was it was sort of like all those things combined about just how transformative it can be and i i gotta think as the performer it's gotta be a tremendous amount of freedom doing it that it's you know it's like any other performing role you you put on a costume and you you act out you perform a a a piece in this case it's a cabaret show a song and dance and a whatever and it's always at least in this movie is the way they portray it. It's so over the top. It's like, you know, it's not just, I'm going to pretend to be the person from ABBA and I'm going to dress up like them. It's like, I'm going to do this thing with this elaborate headdress and these outfits and this wings and these giant boots. And it's just like, to me, that's always been part of the appeal is just, it's so, so over the top. Like that's part of what I want to see when I when I see something like this. So I think that's part of what I always liked about this. Yeah, I, I, I understand what you're saying. And going back to Tootsie, I remember there was a great line in that when Dustin Hoffman says, it's one of the great acting challenges that an actor could ever have. But I, I, I get where you're coming from from the over the top, but that's where I think there's a disconnect for me. So Hugo Weaving opens this movie by doing a drag performance in front of an audience. And this is where I started to have an issue with the movie right off the hop. His performance sucks. Yeah. There's no energy. It's listless. He's sleepwalking through it. And I would get it if the point is that they're bored with doing it and then going north to the hotel, maybe to inspire themselves, to rediscover their love of drag as an art form. But at no point in the movie did they ever perform and actually seem to be either A, good at it, or B, loving what they were doing. Oh no, I disagree. I think I think a lot of the performances they do along the way, especially the one that I always love is the one where they're out in the desert and the uh, the Aboriginal guy finds them and they do the the I will survive number and then 
halfway through they get the guy to dress in the silver outfit and and join them in the dance that that number to me i love that number it's it's just they they seem to be having such a good time of it um okay so i will say that was the one scene in the movie that i thought was the best scene in the movie we'll come back mm-hmm. to that well let me just stick a pin in that and i'll come back to that because i agree sure. with you there so terrence stamp you mentioned um we see that he's not just a drag performer He's also a cross-dresser or possibly trans, as you mentioned, offstage as well. But just like Hugo Weaving, Terrence Stamp sleepwalks through the entire movie. Now, again, I could understand if it's just that he's sort of sick and tired of his life in some way, but that doesn't seem to be what's being conveyed, or, or at least if that's the point, to me it's not conveyed very well, in my opinion. So I think... I think for Hugo Weaving's character and Terrence Stamp's character. So I think, again, not an expert on this, but I think that Terrence Stamp's character of Bernadette is supposed to be transgendered. This is someone who was born mm. with male genitalia who has since transformed, you know, physically uh, been changed into a, a woman and obviously identifies as a woman. And they, you know, she uses the name Bernadette um, consistently and gets very angry when they call her Ralph. Um, uh, you know, they almost say it in a way meant to sort of be a little spiteful the couple of times when it comes up. Um, but um, I th- I always got the impression that um, both Tick and Bernadette were suffering from a certain amount of depression. Bernadette, obviously, because her her partner, uh, who they refer to as Trumpet, uh, has recently died and who was obviously much younger. Um, and it's like part of the part of the pitch is, hey, come with us on this this adventure out into the into the outback we're going to go and do this show it'll give you a chance to get away from it all and take your mind off this this terrible thing that's just happened so i always felt that there was this uh uh, depression factor that bernadette was obviously depressed that her um partner had just died and that um hugo weaving's character was sort of depressed around just sort of the almost like the self-deprecating like I, i i'm not happy with with the choices i've made um uh, again, that doesn't sound right either. And and it, it was more like he's he seems so preoccupied with this idea that he's still technically married to this woman. They have a child together. He's been absent. And yet when pressed later in the movie about like, oh, hey, you know, you, you don't seem to have ever had a boyfriend. It's like there seemed to be a tremendous feeling of loyalty there. And I think that that sort of weighed on him. And so by taking this trip and doing this thing, like he talks about repayment to the wife it seems like this is almost going to be therapeutic for him to to take this thing and be able to lift this burden and be able to come to terms with the fact that he's a gay man who's, who has a son and he can still have a life as a gay man and still potentially be a father. And I think we sort of get that resolution towards the end of the movie. But until then, it's like, here's this therapy, this therapeutic trip. Like That's how it, what I always got out of it. Anyway. We'll come back to that in a second. I should mention Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, is actually the bus. Yes. <laughs> Which I thought was interesting. Yes. Um, the Barbie camper. He calls it a Barbie camper. And then later in the movie, they paint it pink. And I'm like, mm-hmm. that's just perfect. Mm-hmm. Uh, I told my wife that Guy Pierce is in this movie. Uh, so I said, you know, you're going to like watching this. Since when we watched uh, Memento together, she kept saying how she thought he was so hot. So I mentioned, hey, this, you know, Guy Pierce is in this movie. And then she's like, who's that? And I said, it's the guy from Memento. The guy you thought was hot. So she says to me, Oh, Brad Pitt is in this movie? And I'm like, <laughs> Brad Pitt wasn't in Memento. And she says to me, he wasn't? 
So it was it was about this time I realized this was going to be a very long hour and 40 minutes to get through this thing. But one thing, so they stop at night. They, they go out in the desert and Guy Pierce goes out to make dinner on the barbecue and they lock him out. Why? Why did that happen? I didn't understand. Uh, they were, I'm, I, I can't remember the exact dialogue. I think he says something to set them off and they, they decide to tease him a little bit. And then that was sort of the punishment was, oh. hey, if you're going to be a jerk like that, we're going to lock you out. Because okay. he's. His character is very childish and immature mm-hmm. and seeks attention just like a little kid would. And he's constantly doing things that are, you know, done simply to get attention. And there are a number of times in the movie when he does this. And this is just one more example. And on the bus, he's constantly being annoying to the other uh, passengers. And they basically say, you know what? This is how you treat a kid. You you know, we're going to lock you out. You don't get sleep in a bed tonight. Ha ha. Mm. Not that I would ever do that to a child. Uh, right, exactly. Yeah. Uh, they seem to be amazed and genuinely shocked by the size and the vastness of the Australian outback. You know, the camera pulled... Like, I don't understand. What was up with that? I mean, I live in Canada and I even know about the vastness of the Australian outback. So that that, that kind of struck me as being a little bit odd. Well, I think a big part of this movie is that it's a it's a journey. They're on this trip, and it seems like these three characters have lived a very isolated life in a very small, relatively safe community. And I, I always got the impression that they haven't really gone anywhere or done anything, geographically speaking. Um, and so by taking this trip, it's like, oh yeah, hey, it's just, you know, we're going to just jump in the bus and away you go. And then I think it, it dawns on them after the first day or two, they're like, this is, this is going to be a big deal. Like, and I think, I think that's sort of where that's supposed to go. It's funny. That was a very theatrical moment. Like when they pulled back and showed that, but I got the impression early that this might've been adapted from a theater play. I don't know anything backstory of this movie. I got that impression from the dialogue, especially um, Guy Pierce's lines. It, it felt very theatrical in nature to me. I don't know. I, just, I, I, I don't believe it was adapted from a screen from a stage performance, but I do know that they eventually, after the success of the movie, because the movie was quite successful, they turned it into a touring musical, uh, which when it came through Toronto, my wife and I actually went to see it. And uh, funny side story here in the movie, Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, um, um, Guy Pierce's character Felicia is obsessed with ABBA and there's yes. a, a few ABBA numbers that happen through the course of the movie and when they went to do the stage performance they couldn't get the rights to use the ABBA music so they changed it to Madonna so in the stage performance mm. it was all Madonna songs where they had previously had ABBA songs in the movie so we thought that was a little uh, an interesting little bonus when we went to see it. And the stage show was fantastic. The, the, again, the costumes, the coordination, the choreography, the dance numbers, the, the just sheer physical performance. It was it felt like almost like you would see like with like a Cirque du Soleil kind of show where they're doing all sorts of feats of athletics. It's like to perform the way they performed in the costumes they had on. And in many cases with these outrageous footwear yeah it was just it was fabulous you mentioned that the movie was successful but it wasn't i mean in 1994 it finished 112th at the box office that year it made 11 million dollars and yeah but it cost peanuts to make so as a percentage it did very well but i mean it it was nominated for an oscar and it got a lot of uh, international praise and it was a hit on video and on cable like it got a it got a 
a strong following after it it left theater and went to home video. I guess maybe it became a cult, you know, film. Very much film, so. Obviously. Very much so. Uh, so anyway, so they, they're, they're out on this trip and they stop in this little backwater out back town and they go shopping. And the locals' reaction to the three of them walking down the street in drag. Why did they get all doled up in drag to go shopping? Like, they weren't performing. They must have known it wouldn't play in a little redneck town. Um, people should people should be able to be who they want to be. And they should be able to walk around being who they want to be. But in 1994, in a redneck outback town in Australia, there's going to be consequences that come with doing this. And, and for me, it's one thing to express who you are as a human being. But it's also important to be realistic, I think, about the world and to act safely within it. Like, it's not safe for me to walk around Central Park at three o'clock in the morning with $50 bills taped to my body. You know, the fact that it's not safe is 100% on the muggers. It, it's on them. It's not on me. The muggers are in the wrong. But I have to realize that it's not safe to be out there with $50 bills taped to my body. And the same could be said here, that if, if they walk around in full drag getup in a backwater redneck town and get harassed it's a hundred percent on the locals they're in the wrong but it doesn't mean it's a good idea to do it and, and, and please know i'm not trying to defend the locals here i i'm a hundred percent on the side of anyone who wants to be whatever they want to be i will walk side by side with them and defend their right to do so but i think you got to pick your battles in this world yeah i think i think i i gotta agree with everything you just said i although i think sort of the point that they're trying to make in the movie or the, again, I don't know exactly, but I would suspect it's very much what you were just saying. It's I'm going to dress in a way that I want to dress. I'm, you know, let me be me. And if you don't like it too bad. And, but again, I think, I think the point you, you bring up is well, is well uh, positioned. And I think that's sort of the point is the, the characters are still in the mentality of I'm at home in my safe little community where what I, what I choose to dress like and, and is, is acceptable or is at least accepted. And I think this is sort of that idea that even though they've traveled this distance, they maybe haven't realized just, even though geographically it isn't a lot of miles or kilometers, the mentality is so different being just a little bit outside of, of the, the safer communities. And um, and you continue to see that as they get farther and farther away, the resistance to um, to who they are and how they appear, the reactions become worse and worse, eventually escalating to violence. And I mean, they obviously um, after that first night, there's graffiti uh, spray painted on the side of the bus, which ultimately lends ends up with them painting the bus pink. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah. And, and so. Yeah, I think that just sort of builds on what you were saying. I think you you mentioned some good good points, like, like like the idea thematically, the idea of traveling just a few miles outside of Sydney and having it being a completely different world is a really good theme to explore. But I don't feel like they explored that theme in this movie, and I think that's why I was thrown off. I I, I did make a note when they got to the hotel room. I noticed that the hotel room had three beds. I have done a lot of traveling in my life, and I don't think in all my travels around this world that I've ever seen a hotel room with three beds in it. <laughs> that struck me as being odd. Anyway, there was just something. So they go to the local pub, and everyone obviously looks at them. And a local butch, of all people, is the one that decides to call them out and, 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 and pick on them. And Terrence Stamp 
insults her and gets a huge laugh out of the locals. Yeah. So he wins them over and then he drinks the butch under the table, which I thought was was pretty funny. Um, and then Guy Pierce, as you mentioned, he, he refers to Terrence Stamp as Ralph and because his, his name is Bernadette. And Terrence Stamp gets him back to the hotel room and beats the crap out of him. Like, I don't know, I just, I, I, don't, I thought that was weird. And then, as you mentioned in the morning, they go out and they see somebody's vandalized the bus with this, you know, homophobic, gram, you know, graffiti on it. I also thought the license plate was interesting. It was FGY 68 or something like that. Like, so that was interesting. Um, so they're driving out in the desert and Guy Pierce is riding on top with this flowing silver outfit oh, and he's singing yeah, opera. I love the visual. I, I, I don't know. There was a disconnect for me there. It was just, I, something just didn't click. Um, it just, I just felt like the director missed it. I don't know. Something just didn't work. And it was also interesting for me to hear General Zod's booming voice coming out of this aging female character in a blonde wig and a pantsuit. <laughs> that was, that was definitely weird. But, uh, so the bus breaks down and Terrence Stamp goes off on his own on foot in the Australian Outback. And then, like you mentioned, Guy Pierce paints over the graffiti because of course they're miles out in the Australian Outback, and they just happened to bring along gallons of pink paint, apparently. Oh, they went and bought the paint in one of oh, the did they? scenes. Yeah, because then when the guy says to him in the hardware store, he goes, where are y'all from? And he says, Uranus, sort of picking up on the joke from the night before. And you can see he's he's carrying a box of paint. This is after they've seen the graffiti on the bus. So they knew they were going to eventually deal with it. And then once the bus breaks down, it's like, well, we got nothing to do. Bernadette's gone for help. Uh, what else are we going to do? And... So Mitzi decides I'm going to start practicing uh, the the routine and uh, Felicia decides I'm painting this bus. Mm. Well, the scene that you mentioned, I want to come back to where they were rehearsing the dance number of Gloria Gaynor's I Will Survive when the Aboriginal comes across them and then they go to the Aboriginal village and the Aboriginals invite them in and, and they're playing a song on acoustic guitars. And so the three of them decide to get in full drag and do a version of I Will Survive. And like I said, this was, this was, it was the only scene in the movie that I actually enjoyed. It's my favorite part of the, the, that, the, the that scene is my favorite part of this movie. I, I agree with you. The Aboriginals just take them at face value. They just assume yeah. that it's just, it's a custom to dress up and sing like this. At least that's how I interpreted it. And the, the Aboriginals join them in the dance. Like you I, didn't like I know, said, it, you didn't know that I will survive needed a didgeridoo until you actually hear it, and you're like, "Oh my god, that sounds great!" And I love, love the costumes they're wearing with those those hemispherical boots that, if they're standing straight, would be a circle all the way around. Just something about the visual, and they were doing like the forward and backward kicks in these gigantic half crescent boots. Oh, just it's got for me. I just every time I watch this movie, this is the scene I most look forward to because I just. I get a warm fuzzy every time I see it. It just, I love it. I love the music. I love the the choreography. I love the fact that this, these outback folks just totally accept them at face value. And the fact that they're having such a good time. And then there's the line where he's like, I have an idea. And then the next scene, the, the, the Aboriginal guys in the silver outfit and he's like dancing with them. It's just, there's so much to like about this scene. I don't know if I got a warm fuzzy from watching it, but I will say it's probably the only scene in the entire movie that didn't make me want to just turn it off. So I'll say that. Uh, I'll take take that as a, yeah, 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 exactly. Uh, So they fly a kite made out of a dress and an, an inflatable sex doll and it cuts loose and flies away. I totally expected the, it to come back 
and be, did. be part of a subsequent scene. Where was it? I didn't I after didn't. the credits. Oh, okay. Well, that's yeah. Well, I didn't stick around for the credits after this crappy movie. Um, and speaking of crap, there was the scene with the Abbotard. Okay, oh, yeah. <laughs> it's like what the hell. I, don't know. I will say maybe an issue was I. I think I found myself missing a lot of the dialogue because of the heavy Australian accents, like a lot, like maybe a third. Yeah. Like 30% of the movie, I couldn't understand what they were saying. The dialogue was just dropped for me. So it's funny you mentioned that because Mm -hmm. I always in the same vein have this movie and the full Monty for some reason in my mind, those, these two movies are always connected. I think probably because they were both big hits when I was working at blockbuster video. It's funny. Um, I was thinking about the full Monty when I was watching this as well. Cause you may, yeah, but I, that wasn't from Australia though, was it? Or no, was no, it? It, no, it was from uh, Sheffield. Yeah. It was but, England, yeah. in England, but I think it's just the same idea of, it was like this little independent movie and, and um, you know, the, the idea that it ends with this big dance number is obviously uh, a similar tie. And the fact that, uh, both movies got a lot of critical praise for what they could do, the, you know, the little movie that could kind of deal. And um, yeah, I don't know. I, 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 One of the things that I remember when the Full Monty came out is a lot of people I knew had trouble getting past the accents as well. Uh, you know, being from Canada or the U.S., mm-hmm. they they felt the English accent from Sheffield was pretty thick and they, they had to watch it with subtitles. And so it's funny that when you bring this up about Priscilla, mm-hmm. that you had difficulty understanding all the dialogue. It's it just one more thing that sort of connects this to the full Monty in my mind. Yeah, I mean, I, personally, I've never really had any issues. I have a good ear for for accents, so yeah, I didn't. I don't think I've ever felt that I had trouble understanding it. But that's just me. I think I mentioned that in the full Monty review that we did as well. That I had trouble with the with the the dialogue. Yeah. Um, so anyway, so so the bus gets towed to this small town, and they do another show at the local pub. Why do they keep doing this? The locals don't like it. They And the thing is, they put zero effort or zero enthusiasm into it. It's just all so dumb. Like, why not try and go out there and put on one hell of a show and try and win them over? Or, I don't know, just do something else other than what they were doing. At one point, Hugo Weaving says, you can make a really good living doing this dressed up as a woman. But everywhere where they go, the audience hates them. It was just so bad. I don't. Oh well, I think I think that next the one you were just talking about. They they meet the mechanic Bob, and mm-hmm. he seems to be the only one uh, of everyone they meet who is immediately accepting of them, and even talks. About, now again, you get he's clearly a little more worldly than some of the people he he was uh, in the war. I guess it's supposed to be Vietnam, so he was in the Vietnam War. He's obviously been out of his home country and he's obviously traveled a little bit and he talks about being in Sydney and he talks about seeing the the lay girls show, uh, which apparently Bernadette was a part of when she was much younger. And so, again, he's he's immediately able to uh, present an accepting, welcoming uh, face. Uh, I, I mean, I, I definitely got the sense it was genuine. I didn't get any sense of of duplicity there. Mm-hmm. And. I think it's because of his insistence that, oh, yeah, yeah, they'll definitely, you know, we never get anything out here, any entertainment that's any different. And even if this maybe isn't really their bag, because it's different, you'll 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 get the the cheers that you expect. And I think in that scene, you can see the three main characters sort of between themselves realizing like, "Eh, I don't necessarily know about this. But when they're sort of encouraged by this this person to like, hey, you should do this. 
they end up doing it. And like you said, they, they don't seem very enthusiastic about it. And I think mm-hmm. largely that's the reflection of the audience when they realize that this is probably going to be a big mistake. Um, they don't necessarily give it their all. And then, of course, there's the interruption by the wife and her ping pong balls. Now, had you seen this particular clip before? No. So so you mentioned that the guy's oriental wife comes out and does that strip show where she shoots the ping pong balls in the audience. Is this where Trey Parker and Matt Stone got the idea for Absolutely. Winona Reiner's act in South yes. Park, Bigger, Longer, and Uncut? Yeah, so the idea, again, when because I was familiar with this, when you see South Park, Bigger, Longer, and Uncut, the way that that scene is shot with the Winona Ryder character, she's like, now I'm going to do my ping pong ball trick. And you get that over-the-shoulder shot first as the ping pong balls go flying mm-hmm. out into the audience. Now, if you understand that this is where that's being pulled from, the scene seems really funny. And then when they cut to it and she's actually using a ping pong paddle in the South Park movie, that's just another level of humor. So I can remember seeing the South Park movie in the theater with a few buddies from that I worked with at Blockbuster. All of us caught the reference immediately and we just, you know, rip roar and laughter at the whole the whole setup and then the misdirect. But if you don't have this this context, it's not necessarily as funny. In fact, I'm sure you're watching the South Park one going, I don't get it. Like, is this supposed to be funny? But yeah, so that's definitely where this But see, from. I watched the South Park movie first. And I thought it was hilarious. I, I laughed at it. And okay. this and this scene here, I think it was supposed to be funny. But for me, it wasn't. No, I laughed. I don't know. I laughed every time, yeah. I don't know. I just, I just missed it. And so they take Bob with them. Because he obviously yeah, doesn't. Bob's, Bob's wife has had enough. She yeah. leaves, and Bob even you find out later she thought that he was like some worldly man from Sydney, and he mm. turns out he's just a mechanic who lives out in the in the uh, in the in the outback. And she's right. like, "Yeah, enough of this." Well, and he obviously doesn't love his wife, and and he clearly likes drag queens, so he goes with them. And then Guy Pierce is then on top of the bus in these red flowing robes. And the next, I just oh jeez, what what was the deal? With the person walking through the desert pulling the two-wheeled cart. We, we, we saw them, I think, twice. And I didn't yeah. understand what that was about. Yeah, I think I think that, again, I, I, that's something that's always sort of been a bit of a mystery. I think it's the uh, this idea of, you know, the whole slow and steady wins the race kind of thing. Because they take the, the bus takes this big detour way off the main road. And that's when they meet Bob and they have all these adventures. And then eventually they get back on the highway. And that's sort of the next time they see the the person pulling the little uh, cart come by. So yeah, it's never really explained sort of why that's in there. I'm sure there was some deeper meaning that has just always eluded me. So it's a metaphor of some kind. I'm sure it's supposed to be. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm usually pretty good about, yeah. You know, figuring out what these things are supposed to be, but that's one that I've just never been able to nail down. I, I just wanted this movie to be over. I, I can't believe I'll be honest with you. I cannot believe I made it through this whole movie. Seriously. I considered turning it off numerous times. If it wasn't for the fact that I had to do it, you know, this review for this podcast, I would have turned it off. It was awful. Luckily, my wife fell asleep after about maybe 10 minutes into it. And I feel like she got away lucky. She got to go to sleep and didn't have to be subjected to this crappy, crappy movie. I don't know. Oh, oh I mean, I, I, I disagree with you. I think it's a great movie. Uh, if I'm going to give it a score out of 10, I'm giving it a seven and a half all day long. There are some scenes that wow. are fantastic, like the one where they do the I uh, I will survive. I, again, I love that scene so much. But I, I like I like with this movie uh, how it 
presents these characters at a time when you're not seeing anyone like this on the big screen and you're presenting them in a serious way. They're not on there. They're not, Hey, here are two guys uh, who are drag Queens and a transgendered woman. Uh, let's laugh at them. Like that's not why they're on screen. It's it's, this is a slice of life of these three people and it, it treats them like people and it shows some of the hardships and it's, it, it was, I don't think it was the first of its kind, but it was certainly an important movie for uh, people in the LGBTQ community to see themselves on the big screen and and to see, uh, you know, see it portrayed in a positive way. And so for for that, I think it's a very important, uh, very important film. And, and again, I think it's very entertaining. I really enjoyed it. I, well, you know, and, and you mentioned we, we obviously did this movie because it ties in with Tootsie. You know, but but Tootsie to me had some lessons in it, like the characters experienced growth. The, the the I think the audience was forced to confront their feelings toward gender roles and power. It would it would seem that this movie would have been striving for the same thing, but it, it just for me it missed the mark. Which brings me to the question for you, Derek: What was the point of this movie? Like like was it to bring a sympathetic light? you know, to what it's like to be a drag queen? Was it about juxtaposing the minutiae and the boredom of everyday life and, and show that the, the same issues could plague drag queens? What was it? I, I mean, those are all valid uh, uh, reasons. So again, I think, uh, you know, you got to remember, this is a an extremely low-budget movie that had huge aspirations, which achieved an incredible amount of success. Uh, which I think surprised a lot of the people that were tied to it. There's always a hope, you know, if you're in the arts, you always hope that your art is going to be uh, seen by many and accepted by many. And Hey, if it makes some money so much, the better, um, whether or not they actually felt that this was going to do that when they were creating it, I don't know. But uh, as I've read through some of the trivia, it was one of these things where, they lacked money. They lacked sets. They had a lot of friends and family doing things at cheap or no cost. So considering the end result, um, you know, I think it, I think it was a labor of love for the people who, mm. who were involved with it. I think they wanted to present this story of these characters. And um, and yeah, I think it was it was and plus the things you said, it's like, mm. you know, we're going to tell this story. And, and I think it's some of the things we've already touched on. You can feel. You can be yourself and feel safe in a community that is accepting of you. But as you start to move away from that community and whether it's because you're gay or uh, you're transgendered or whether it's because you your skin color is different or your religion is different or whatever, I think that lesson is still appropriate. And it's this is a way to tell this story with a different um, sub subgroup that that hadn't previously had their stories told on a on a big screen. So. I know it was a critical success, and so again, I guess I'm in the minority. But for me, it was just a jumbled mess. Like it could have been good. It it could have had a message. It it could have given mainstream audiences a glimpse into into what this world is like and why these people are human and why they deserve our love and their and our empathy. But it doesn't do any of those things. It, it it's just a big miss on every type of theme that it tries to explore it's it, it, it's a hot sick and quite frankly boring mess that's no 
I, I disagree, but mm-hmm. uh, again, we can agree to disagree on no. this one. I think I think there are certainly some things on this that we did agree on, and um, overall, I, I'm I'm a little bummed out that you didn't uh, enjoy it no. at all. But um, you know, I, I stand by it. I, I think it's I think it's great. I, I give it a, a solid seven out of ten. I I would be happy to rewatch it again. Mm-hmm in the not too distant future. And in fact, I will, I've seen it a few times and I'm certainly going to see it a few more times. Back to the issue of the drag queen shows just for a second, because I I still can't understand what does an audience get out of this? I I just, I don't understand. Is it supposed to be a comment on ultra feminist roles? Is it supposed to be funny to see men dressed up as women? Is it supposed to be titillating? Like I, I just, I still, I just don't get it. I don't know. I think I think each person's going to get something a little different out of it. When, like again, when I when I've been to the um, like when I went to the Lacaz showroom, we saw the Priscilla musical. It's like I was I was fascinated by the the performance itself, by the the acting, the singing, the dancing, the costumes, the choreography, the music. That like it's all just part of live stage performance. You 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 get out of it what you get out of it. I guess it's I I was thoroughly entertained every time I've been. And you mentioned entertain, but then at the end of the movie, the um, you know obviously Terrence Stamp stays behind, and they go on and they do these ABBA songs, and the audience is liking it. So is the point of the movie that they become popular because they still dance with no energy, they lip sync with zero enthusiasm? I just I, like why would anyone like their show even at the end? Well, I think I think the idea by the end is that they've they've been on this journey of discovery and you know, it's like, we found our happy place. We found ourselves. And again, I think that, mm-hmm. um, Mitzi, Hugo Wiegand's character has, has come to a, a realization about, uh, himself about, you know, I'm a gay man and I can live this life and I can be a father and I don't have to be ashamed. I don't have to be embarrassed. I don't have to, uh, you know, feel like I'm cheating on, on my spouse. Um, cause they established that they are technically still married so I think I think it was that the character had had a tremendous amount of guilt. And after by the end of this movie, there's been this this realization of, uh, you know, I don't have to feel guilty about this. I don't have to be depressed about this. And and I think that's what's sort of reflected with this very positive song and dance number at the end. But to your point, the actors themselves do not do a great job with this mm-hmm. performance uh, in the sense of conveying this this um you know, a, a level of skill that that is sort of mm-hmm. prescribed in the movie that we don't actually really ever seem to get a payoff on. I think I'd be hard pressed to think of a single solitary movie that I hated worse than this movie. It's probably wow. it's probably the worst movie I've ever seen ever. So wow. you gave it a seven point five. Jeez, oh, I can't even give it a zero. I wouldn't give it a turkey. I'll tell you, what, I'm going to give it a negative twelve. Jeez. <laughs> That's how bad it is. Wow. Now, oh. I, I, one thing I do want to mention. So with, with, yes, Tootsie, with Tootsie, I was very critical of the movie when you look at it from today's perspective. So I think with this film, the one thing that I felt from today's perspective, like my wife and I talked about this after we said, like, if they were to make this movie today, if they were to remake it or make some version of it, what do you think they would need to do differently to make it more um, appropriate for today's audience? And the one thing that we both agreed was the role of Bernadette has to actually be played by a transgendered performer. Now, in 1994, I don't think you were likely to find a well-known performer that could help sell a movie that met this requirement. And I think that might even still be a taller task today. But 
you know, it's like what we're seeing a lot of now uh, with television and such. It's like you can't have uh, a white person playing a person of color. You know, it's it's not appropriate. It, it's through today's lens. It just it doesn't fly. And mm-hmm. so I think that was really the only uh, the only thing that we looked at from today's perspective and went, hey, Terrence Stamp, great actor. I think that his I think he did a great job in this performance as Bernadette. But I don't think if this movie was made today that that role could be played by a straight heterosexual man. I think that you would have to Mm -hmm. recast that role a little differently. Mm -hmm. Um, But other than that, that was sort of the only real thing that we flagged as as an issue from from our perspective. I mean, I'm sure there are other things, but um, yeah. So I just I feel in order to be Mm -hmm. fair that, uh, you know, that that needed to be said. Well, that makes sense. And I definitely think that there are themes in this movie that they should explore again today and they more today than they did even in 94. It should be explored again, but just not as a remake of this. I think they should just take a different approach to it. That's just my thought. Fair enough. But anyway, on that note, let's have some fun with Caveman. So our last two film reviews have dealt with gender-bending characters. We did this movie and we did Tootsie. Yep. So I think it's only fitting that this week's trivia reflect that theme again. Okay, and I know, Derek, last week you kind of threw this trivia at me but i'm gonna i'm gonna put it back on you okay so i'm gonna ask you trivia questions about famous gender bending roles in movies okay all right so you're not gonna ask me the same questions i asked you because i've already forgotten the answers yeah no no worries Uh, there's there's one movie that is that isn't the same and it's 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 the first question one of film history's most famous comedies is the 1959 movie some like it hot and you mentioned this last week yeah it features marilyn monroe shocked me yeah and a pair of Hollywood legends. So, Derek, yes. can you name the cross-dressing actors who yes. starred opposite Marilyn Monroe in Billy Wilder's classic comedy? Who were they? Yeah, it was Jack Lemmon and um, uh, Tony Curtis. Very good. Congratulations. You got them. Okay. What was the screen name of the transvestite actor Harris Glenn Milstead, who appeared in a number of John Waters' more famous movies, including Hairspray and Pink Flamingos. Oh. Screen um, name. You something, it. was it something Rose? No. I, I don't remember. It was Divine. Divine. Divine, yes. Okay. Okay, yeah, I know you're gonna get this one. Besides the outrageously wonderful performance put on by the cross-dressing Nathan Lane in the film The Birdcage. Yes. Which other actor appears in full drag in that 1996 film, Derek? Oh, uh, Gene Hackman. <laughs> yeah, I, love that movie. I knew I you would get that one. I knew you would get it. I almost recommended that instead of this. Right. Because I love The Birdcage so much. It is. It, it definitely makes like my top 50 all time. It is. I love it. You should have recommended that because I haven't seen that one either. So that one. We'll, we'll, we'll do that one down okay. the road. But let's let's we'll put a pin in that one and we'll come back to it down the road. All right. What's the name of the 1992 film directed by Neil Jordan and starring, among others, Jay Davidson in a truly stunning performance as a transvestite? Um, a wild guess here, just based on the date. Was it The Crying Game? It was The Crying Game. Congratulations. Never saw it. Yes. No, I know of the twist ending, but uh, yeah. I've never seen it. Okay, this was another movie you mentioned last week, but it's a little bit of a twist on it. Robin Williams takes his turn as a cross-dresser in the 1993 film Mrs. Doubtfire 
as you mentioned yep. last week. Yep. And he plays an estranged father, desperately trying to find access to his children. But what was the name of the male role that Williams plays in the film? Um, wow. That's a real deep cut. Um, yeah, you really got to know it. Yeah. No, it's been so long since I've seen the movie. Give me a quick second here. Hold mm-hmm. on. His name was... Go for it. Take your time. No. You know what? I'm, I'm not going to get it. I don't know. Pass. It's Daniel Hillard. No, I wouldn't have got it. All right. Which Terry Gilliam film features a lovely number performed by Michael Jeter, fully decked out in drag for a mousy girl named Lydia? Oh, that's uh, The Fisher King. Very good. Congratulations. I, I couldn't place yes. the actor. And then when good you said you. Lydia, I'm like, Lydia! I remember <laughs> the number. I was like, oh, yeah. All right. What was the name of Tim Curry's cross-dressing character in the Rocky Horror Picture Show? I'm just a sweet transvestite. Uh, it was uh, Dr. Frankenfurter, wasn't it? Very good. I, I, I didn't. I thought I would hook get you on that one because no, you mentioned that's before. That's another one that I, I'm not a big fan of musicals. Yeah, but Rocky Horror, I I, I know very well. I really, really, we'll have to do that one on the show because I I remember mentioning that. I thought I mentioned that on a previous show, and you were like, I don't like that movie. No, no, oh, the okay. opposite. I love that. Film. Oh, good. I like it too. Okay, Tyler Perry made a name for himself by starring first on stage and then on a film as this matriarchal character. What was the name of Tyler Perry's female alter ego, Derek? Uh, was that Medea? It was Medea. I thought I read when I was doing the, so mm-hmm. I, I, when we do trivia, I mm-hmm. usually do way yep. more questions than we actually read out. Right. And I had one last week about this and apparently Tyler Perry has made 11 films featuring Medea. Wow. I was like, wow, that's that's amazing. Like anyway. He's a, he's a billionaire. So go yeah, for it. He's earned every cent. Okay. John Lithgow was nominated for a 1982 oh, best yeah. supporting actor for his portrayal of Roberta Muldoon. Derek, can you name the film? So it got Robin Williams in it? Was it know. The World According to Garp? Yes. It was the world according to Gart. Congratulations. I've never, I've never seen it. Oh, really? Oh, okay. I'm going to make a note right now. i got to put that one. It is a great film. Great Honestly, film. I'm, I'm not a huge fan of John Lithgow. I sort of started really? to come around on yeah, a little bit yeah. when Third Rock from the Sun, I went back and started binging those. But I don't know, just something about him. He's never never really worked for and me. And it's funny for me, and I've mentioned this on the podcast before, I'm not a big fan of Robin Williams' work. I never really wow. was. I never was. But I, I liked two of his movies. And um, one was... Goodwill Hunting. I was going to say, please say Goodwill Hunting. Yeah. And The World According to Garp was the other one. Oh, God. Wow. Okay. So good in that movie. Um, I read the book as well. The book was good, but the movie was even better. You turn that into a book? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right. Uh, two more for you. Okay. Hilary Swank won a Best Actress Oscar for her portrayal of a real life trans man, Brandon Tina, in 1999. What was the name? Of the film, Derek. Uh, yeah, it was uh, Boys Don't Cry. You are correct. See, yeah, I've never well. seen it. I know. I, I that's one of the ones that's on my watch list. Mm-hmm. I just yeah, no, I it. haven't seen it either, but I'm familiar with it. All right, and the last one, Joyce Heiser, posed as a teenage boy 
on the high school football team in this 1985 teen comedy. Hmm. I know there's been like a few with sort of this premise. Was it, I know, uh, again, was it, uh, she's the man. Oh no, I'm sorry. I think that was like, a. Amanda. That was a little later. I think that was. Yeah, she was later. No, no, this one. I remember Joyce Heiser did a famous topless scene near the end of the movie. It was just one of the guys. Sure. Just one of the guys was. Never heard of it. Yeah. You did really good though. You got you got most of them. Almost all. Well, in all fairness, as I was prepping the trivia for last Mm. week, I I did a lot of homework. So if you if we had done these movies in the other order, I probably would not have done as well because a lot of these things would not have been top of mind. Right. Right. But no, I think we can. Okay, so right. um, next episode, uh, we're going to be back with a top five list. However, I think we've got some vacation time coming up, I understand. Yeah, I'm going to be away next week, so unfortunately, no new episode. But I believe we got a Greatest Hits trivia episode slotted in there. Yeah, it'll be coming up on the, the first of the month for November, so it'll drop awesome. right around there. So then we'll definitely do that. But uh, then you're going to go away on vacation, and we'll come back with a top five list. So, you know, we'll do Sounds something good. then. And if you want to reach out to Derek, you can find him on Twitter at Amaron underscore DM. You'll find me on Twitter at C McBrien. And as I mentioned before, popgoesyourworld.com. That's our website. All of our contact information is on there. Make sure you reach out to us. In the meantime, this is Chris McBrien for Derek Myers saying thanks for listening to Pop Goes Your World, the pop culture podcast for the generations. Thanks for listening to Pop Goes Your World. You can contact Chris and Derek at popgoesyourworld.com. Please take a minute and review the podcast on iTunes or wherever you download and listen to the show.